Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. There are currently over 10,000 Ukrainian refugees in Ireland, with Tornisa Leo Varadkar telling the Dáil that this is to rise to 20,000 by the end of this month. It's not going to be possible to provide uh, what we'd like to provide, which is self-catering, own-door accommodation for everyone in the space of a few weeks. And I'm here at the Department of Children, where I'll be speaking to Minister Roderick O'Gorman, whose department has been tasked with finding suitable accommodation for those Ukrainian refugees. More than 23,000 new COVID cases were reported today as nurses urged the government to bring back the mask mandate in some settings. Professor Anthony Staines and Dr Alona Duffy join us later for their reaction. And later, Ireland's joint bid to host Euro 2028. Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions on hashtag TonightVMTV. First tonight, U.S. President Joe Biden has said that it is clear that Russia is considering the use of chemical and biological weapons in Ukraine and warned of a severe Western response if it chose to do so. Well, joining me now is Washington correspondent Simon Marks. And Simon, Russia first accusing Ukraine of having chemical weapons and then the U.S. very quick to hit back with Biden making a counterclaim without providing any evidence. Yeah, absolutely. President Biden was addressing the business roundtable here in Washington, D.C., and he said that Vladimir Putin has his back up against the wall in Ukraine uh, because of the difficulties that Russian armed forces have encountered there, the strength uh, of Ukrainian resistance to their advance. It's one of the areas in which uh, the U.S. believes the Russian president miscalculated. He thought that his forces were not going to encounter this degree of difficulty toppling uh, the government of President Volodymyr Zelensky. And President Biden uh, again insisted that every time the Russians talk uh, falsely, the U.S. says about uh, chemical and biological weapons that have been developed by the United States in Ukrainian laboratories, that, he says, is a false flag operation. They're trying to create a pretext to use chemical and biological weapons themselves in a bid uh, to hasten the advance of Russian forces in Ukraine. The difficulty with all of this is that the president hasn't provided any evidence to support that. It is reportedly based uh, on intelligence that the United States has gathered. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says, look, we have repeatedly uh, explained to the world what we believe is going to happen step by step in Ukraine, and that has been right over the course of the last month. Now we're projecting this possible use of chemical weapons in the days or weeks ahead. And Simon, Joe Biden heading to Brussels this week. What's the aim of that visit? 
Uh, well, this issue of chemical weapons and also anxieties over a possible nuclear weapons use by Russia uh, will be on the agenda for talks with NATO leaders at NATO headquarters in Brussels. Uh, then, of course, separate talks with EU leaders uh, in Brussels as well. Uh, and uh, the aim of the visit broadly is to continue projecting uh, allied resolve in the direction of Russia to continue standing up uh, for Ukraine and provide Ukraine uh, with the weapons, at least some of them, that it needs to defend itself. So President Biden will, we're told, be unveiling new initiatives to provide lethal aid to Ukrainian armed forces. He'll also be unveiling fresh sanctions against the Russians and the White House says critically renewed enforcement actions of existing sanctions to make sure that Russian oligarchs and members of uh, Vladimir Putin's inner circle can't find loopholes to avoid the sanctions that have already uh, been implemented. He'll also be travelling to Poland, meeting US troops and refugees who have fled uh, the conflict in Ukraine. That'll be taking place at the end of the week. Okay, Simon Marks in Washington, thanks for joining us. Now here with me in studio is Sinn Féin TD Louise O'Reilly, Fine Gael's Alan Farrell and political editor for the Irish Examiner Daniel McConnell. Um, Daniel, to come to you first on the big issue at home is how we respond to this growing humanitarian crisis. And the government is considering the best way to answer the call, as it were, but it's facing a huge challenge. It is, and the logistics and that logistical challenge is clear for everybody to see. I think what we, as we were reporting this morning, there's a sort of frantic search of properties, available properties going on across the country from hotels, guest houses, B&Bs, to vacant houses, to, uh, you know, vacant monasteries, convents, uh, other kind of state properties that are there. And ultimately, I suppose, what the government is trying to do is put in place a number of, of properties, not just for 10,000 or 15,000, but a much, much larger number than that. I mean, that there is a forecast that Ireland could take in up to 200,000, you know, based on this, you know, the UN forecast that there are 10 million people now displaced and Ireland will take in roughly 2% of those who, who make their way through Europe. Now, obviously, Leo Varadkar and others have speculated it could be a lower number than that in the short term, but clearly the pace of which, the, you know, the, the escalation of numbers coming into Ireland over the last two weeks alone, I mean, it's 6,000 roughly in the last two weeks alone. I mean, that has really put... Uh, the government on notice that they need to do an awful lot in relation to this. And it's not an easy fix. I think that the, the Taunashe gave voice to that in the Dáil today. Like, like not everyone's going to have a, a turnkey accommodation. You're looking at mass vaccination or what were former mass vaccination centres in, in like the, the National Show Centre in, in Swords being turned into a, a, essentially a, a, an emergency shelter. And that's one of many. You've got Mill Street in Cork, City West and many more. OK, well, let's get more on that. We can cross live now to Kira Doherty, who's at the Department of Children and Youth Affairs with Minister Roderick O'Gorman. Kira. Thanks, Clara. Yes, you see, I am here with uh, Minister Roderick O'Gorman, whose department has been tasked with providing accommodation for the Ukrainian refugees who've came to Ireland. Uh, Minister, thank you for joining us this evening. I want to get straight into the numbers that the Tanish just spoke about today. 20,000 by the end of this month, 40,000 by the end of April. How many of those do you think are going to need accommodation? Look, uh, it's, it's undoubtedly a, a significant challenge. We've had 10,000, uh, 10,100 10, 10, as, of, as of yesterday evening. And I think that the key focus right now and over the last two weeks has been securing short-term accommodation in hotels. And we've secured just over 2,200 2, hotel rooms to accommodate people for that short-term need. 
next step in the process is to, to provide more medium term security for them and we're looking at the pledge list as you know we're doing in conjunction with the Red Cross 20,000 people have made pledges there primarily of accommodation of those about 4,000 are vacant units and that's what we're focusing on first and we have a team contacting people looking to get people into those uh, those units as quickly as possible and then we'll be on moving on to looking at shared accommodation where people have offered a room maybe in, in a house. But in terms of people who've arrived so far about four 40 to 50 percent have required accommodation. Do you expect that percentage to increase? I would expect it to increase as we go on. We've seen certainly in the, the initial the initial two weeks a very significant number of the people coming to Ireland were coming here because they had family members here already and they sought a, a accommodation with their family members. So originally only one third maybe were seeking accommodation, two thirds were living with family members. As I said, it's gone to about 50-50 now and we would accept, expect the number of people needing uh, accommodation, needing the state support in, in, in getting shelter will increase uh, as numbers increase. Um, your uh, colleague, cabinet colleague today, um, Minister Charlie McConnell, mentioned a figure of 200,000 potentially um, who may flee to Ireland and, and seek refuge here. Do you think that number is realistic? Well, look, I, I think Ireland will traditionally take about 2% of, uh, across the EU of, of, the, of the number of migrants in, in a particular crisis. So right now we've uh, 3.4 million Ukrainians have fled the country. So that would equate with about 68,000. Now that's still a very significant challenge and, and we're under no illusions about that. And that's why I suppose the approach being adopted is an all of government approach. My own department dealing with that, that short term housing need uh, and other departments looking out in terms of what we can do in terms of maybe looking at buildings, large buildings uh, owned by religious congregations, owned by other state agencies. And I know the Department of Housing did a call out to local authorities across the country and they've identified a list of maybe 500 buildings that could potentially be repurposed for medium term accommodation. But what do you think is more realistic, 68,000 or 200,000? Well, look, it is difficult to speculate in terms of, of the current crisis. We've seen how significantly the numbers have, have, have raised in, in the last number of weeks. I think it very much depends on whether the conflict remains in, in, in the kind of the existing centres. I look, I think it's fair to say if you, if you saw a, a Russian offensive towards Odessa or some other major population centre, that would probably have a, a significant increase in the number of people internally displaced within Ukraine, but also the number of people leaving the, the country. Uh, you mentioned there are the short-term solutions. What do you mean by short-term? What length of time can we expect people to be living in this type of accommodation? Yeah, well, look, I suppose we have to be flexible because we're, we're, we're aware and, and we're, 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 I suppose, taking up all offers of accommodation because of, of, the, of the scale of, of, of the crisis. It's a wartime situation when, when none of us ever thought we, we, we'd see. But I think the short-term accommodation in a number of weeks primarily looking at the at the hotel accommodation and then looking at the, those offers of, of, uh, of um, those pledged offers in terms of sharing homes uh, or, or vacant homes I think we'll primarily be asking people to commit to up to a year on, on those uh, and then in terms of the other uh, uh, aspects that we're looking at again kind of a year a year plus these are these repurposed buildings yes yeah. So we're talking about old schools, old convents, perhaps places where you know vaccinations took place. That type of idea. Yeah. Look, I, I think we're we're looking at all options right now. Um, I, I think we're going to have to be flexible here. We're we're going to have to repurpose some 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 existing buildings, recognising the need to to provide people with shelter, but also recognising the need that we need to be able to do this uh, at a rapid pace, uh, particularly if we do see uh, significant increases in numbers over the next number of weeks. But as the Tanisha um, said today, it's unlikely you're going to be able to provide the type of accommodation you would.
would like for these people? Well, look, again, we have to recognise this is a wartime situation. This is a crisis response that Ireland, that all other EU member states are, 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 are undertaking. Uh, you know, this situation is, is far from ideal. But I think, you know, Ukrainian refugees are coming here. They're looking for mm -hmm. safety. They're looking for shelter. And that's what we'll seek to provide them with. Uh, when I hear about these repurposed buildings, I can't help but think of the direct provision centres um, that you have committed to shut down. They're very similar. I, I wouldn't necessarily uh, agree with that. Um, and I think one of the, the other core differences, of course, is that one of the key problems with direct provision was the isolation, that people were kept at a distance, whereas everything we've done in terms of our response to Ukraine is about integration. People are entitled to get a PPS number. People are entitled to enter the education system. People are entitled to take up a job mm -hmm. here. Ukrainians are being, are being treated as, uh, as EU citizens. I think that will be really important in terms of ensuring there is integration for as long as, as, as people are, are, are here uh, and hopefully you know, put them in a strong position once peace returns to Ukraine, U Ukraine and they can return home again. But are you concerned, given the pressure that is on this government to um, respond to the crisis in Ukraine and to provide accommodation um, for those who have fled, that the accommodation that we will provide will perhaps not be suitable for the children who are coming over from Ukraine? Well, look, we'll put in place all measures to, to support children to ensure that they can access uh, education, be it primary, post-primary or indeed preschool. Um, but look, no one can be un under any doubt of the scale of the challenge that Ireland faces, that all EU member states face, and indeed, you know, smaller countries like Moldova, as you know, we offer to take and, and will be taking 500 uh, Ukrainian refugees from Moldova because it has, as, as a non-EU country, it has an even kind of mm. lesser infrastructure to, 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 to support the, the huge influx that it has faced as a, as a country yeah. immediately adjacent to Ukraine. Uh, but you'll accept, Minister, that there's a particular difficulty here in Ireland, given how dysfunctional the housing system has been over the last number of years and given the difficulties uh, this government has faced and previous governments in building up housing capacity. Mm. Well look there is a challenge here uh, and we are looking at all options in terms of accommodating people that's what we've done up to now we're getting this amazing support from the Irish people in terms of, 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 of the pledged, uh, pledged accommodation and we're looking beyond that in terms of con considering um, uh, how, we, how we repurpose all relevant buildings buildings to, to ensure that we can provide for the numbers of people who we expect to arrive here. That's the short and medium term solution and the long term solution? Well look, we're, we're working in the context of the, 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 the temporary protection directive and that's looking from uh, initially uh, giving um, temporary protection status to Ukrainians for one year and that can be extended up to up to three years. Uh, um, I, I, I think we're, we're all hoping of course that we, there will be a, a diplomatic a solution achieved in Ukraine within, within that time period but we have to be planning within that particular period. All right, we're going to leave it there, but Minister Roderick O'Gorman, thank you for your time this thank evening. You. Back to you in studio, Claire. Kira, thanks for that. Well, still here in studio with me is Sinn Féin TD, Louise O'Reilly, Fine Gael's Alan Farrell and political editor for the Irish Examiner, Daniel McConnell. Uh, listening to the minister there, uh, Louise, uh, the plans are clearly ambitious. No one's under any doubt of the scale of the challenge. Um, you referred on a couple of occasions to a wartime situation and, and responding in that capacity. Do you think we'll be able to do this uh, uh, and, and care for people who, who so desperately need help right now? 
Well, there's absolutely no dispute in the, the, the generosity of the, the Irish people. They've come forward in huge numbers and that's very much to be uh, commended. But as the Minister points out, that's not going to be the, the solution to the accommodation crisis. And we, we need to recognise that the refugees who are coming here are coming into a place where we already have serious pressures in terms of accommodation. And, and obviously, extraordinary measures are going to be necessary. And I, I, what I'd like to hear from government actually in, you know, in this kind of short term period is how practical supports are going to be put into place. So, for example, children who are going to be starting school, some of them have started already. And, you know, this actually something that came as a bit of a shock to me because my instinct was those kids have been through enough that they, they want some time off school. And to, to, but actually, school represents normalities. They really want to be in school. So what we want to see is the things that the government can do and can do quickly, such as produce a database of where all the, the vacant uh, places are in the schools, match those up with, uh, with teachers so that we have a database of Ukraine Ukrainian teachers who are going to be coming, they'll help with the language, etc, etc. So it's really, really practical things that need to happen right here and right now that I don't think have been done and we want to, we want to hear that. I know I and, and my colleagues have all sort, sought uh, briefings from the relevant departments. We haven't been granted those as yet and you know the opposition want to work with government to make sure that we get this right but we do need to see that coming from the government as well so that the, we, we will have that collective response and you know I, I believe in the what they call the, the wisdom of crowds as you might say. There is a, a great value in us coming together as an Oireachtas but that won't happen unless the government do what they say they would do and give us those briefings and we have that kind of open dialogue which we need so 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 much at the okay. moment. Louise thinks Sinn Féin needs details. Um, are the details forthcoming? We heard a little bit about short-term, medium-term plans. This is likely to be a long-term crisis. Um, it's unclear really how we're, how we're going to do this given the scale of what's involved, Alan Farrell. Absolutely, um, Claire. I mean, you know, there, this has to be an extraordinary response right across the country, not just the generosity of the Irish people who have put forward 20,000 properties, but the government has to respond appropriately as well. I think probably one of the most important messages that we got today from the Taunashe during leaders' questions that we have to do our best at absolutely everything in supporting these refugees coming across from Ukraine, and that includes the likes of the one-stop shop that was established at Dublin Airport, which is an extraordinary uh, efficient operation where PPS numbers are issued, where uh, solace is given to, to individuals, particularly families, children and their parents to spend a little bit of time catching their breath before they are supported through various state bodies, including um, um, coordinated by the Irish Red Cross, who are doing extraordinary work uh, right across the country at various ports, as you're most likely aware at this stage. Um, and what will follow from that will have to be a coordinated effort to ensure, as Louise has rightly pointed out, that children are offered places in schools, that the Department of Education, indeed the Department of Further and Higher Education, is able to support uh, both students right across the spectrum. Would there be a spectrum. coordinated cross-party approach to all of this? I can't imagine, well, I can't speak for, for the opposition. I would imagine that we all have exactly the same interests at heart, and that is to support the refugees as as quickly as we possibly can. But I should point out, you know, with numbers like 20,000 by the end of the month, 40,000 by the end of next month, projections up to 100,000, or as Danny mentioned, up to 200,000 based upon the figures that the UN are providing us, we have to ap employ absolutely every option available to us to try and support the Ukrainian people that are coming here. Uh, the big thing, uh, Danny, is like, how does the government do this without being accused of double standards? Like, we have a homeless crisis, we have a housing crisis, and how we've dealt with refugees to date in this country. Yeah, it's a very difficult dilemma for the government to, to, to grapple with because, as you rightly say, it's not exactly that they're coming into a, a country where 
things work particularly well. And uh, I mean, the CAMS crisis in South Kerry points to the, the frailties of the system. And the children that are coming in from Ukraine are the very people who would need those extra supports and that very intense level of support. So there are legitimate questions that to, to be asked about the capacity of the system to cope with such an influx of people. At, you know, now, I also, I think what COVID has shown is that the system can adapt very quickly when it needs to. And it kind of frustrates a lot of people like me who say, well, you know, things can take many years to get done. But when the government and the system really needs to kind of respond, it can do so. Um, the big question is, like, and I think questions are already be, uh, uh, being asked is like, those poor people who've been languishing in direct, direct provision for eight, nine, 10 years plus, like, are essentially being kind of shoved out of the way. And they, 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 and rightly, I won't say rightly so. And there's so, an but, end date in mind for that, which is 2024, and also the fear that that's not going to happen. With well, the system, direct, like direct the Department of Justice and uh, like, like unnamed people in the Department of Justice made it very clear in, in kind of FOI documents that like that target within or in terms of getting rid of direct provision is simply not going to happen. So there are, there are very legitimate questions about the capacity I mean, of the there, system. Isn't there a point there, Alan, just on like we, we, we pumped money um, in when we needed to with COVID and are we going to resource this in the same way? Does so, it need to be done? I mean, so we've just, lagged behind on this matter. I mean, so don't even said, get started on the housing crisis. In relation and, and to direct to provision, so the Department of Children is, is has now a capital budget of 300 million euro in order to expend to house those who seek international protection outside of this particular crisis. This is something that was announced last year and will undoubtedly be implemented in the coming years up to 2024. And that is, that is the target for hope. government. Now, this- Is it realistic? Well, I, I think we have to try. I mean, I mean we, we have made, to try. We've, we've heard we have, we have, we've had to try quite a lot actually over well, the last so, okay, while. So the, but the, in terms the, of realistically the achieving attitude, these targets. The attitude toward direct provision in relation to the programme for government commitment and then the, uh, the ensuing policy that came from a period of research within the department culminated in a, a, a policy which has now been published, which is available on the department's website and which is backed up with capital budget in order to try and facilitate the development of these. Louise. But okay, if you the, talk the about it in the context of Ukraine, it's okay. a completely different conversation. Okay, well, so we're talking about direct provision at the minute and the actual numbers in direct provision um, have, have gone up in the last year. So uh, far from uh, exceed, you know, achieving their targets, which I don't believe they will. And, and that, that's, being, that's being honest. I, I would love to see it happen. God knows I would love to see it happen, but I can't see it. Um, and definitely I can't see it when I look at the fact that the numbers in direct provision are actually going up. So that says that the, the targets are, are actually going to get further and further away. So there needs to be an honesty uh, around this. And we need to also examine the conditions that people live in in direct provision. What, what, about, what about what we're hearing about on, on the short term, um, you know, repurposing, you know, large units for multiple families? Yeah, the direct provision was supposed to be short term, Claire. Direct provision was supposed to be a short-term thing, and now we 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 know. I think it's the 20th anniversary of of direct provision. So it, that's the worry: is that when in the short term, during this absolute emergency period, emergency measures are taken, but then those emergency measures become the permanent solution. And as as the minister pointed out, and he said himself, direct provision was about keeping people at a distance. This latest effort is about integrating people. So you know we need to, as I always say, check against delivery. Right. So we know. 
know that, mm. that what you, we know what they're saying, but we also know that past performance suggests that a, a short-term solution can very, very easily become a long-term solution, and that doesn't work. And we, if you've ever visited a direct provision centre, and I have, you wouldn't want your worst enemy to, to, to be in those conditions. They're absolutely horrendous. So I don't want to see the government take their eye off that ball either. If there is a commitment to end direct provision by 2024, I don't think anyone is convinced that the, will happen. However, what we do need to see is the numbers going in the right direction okay. at the outside very of, least. Outside um, of this war in Ukraine, outside of this war, I believe that Ireland and Europe will only see an increase in the number of people seeking international protection. And that is due to a multitude of different reasons, climate change, geopolitics, among other things. Yeah, so there are, so, sorry, I know, if but I could, there are, there are a number, there are a number, there's 6,000 people, asylum so seekers I, currently in the system at the moment. I'm about to say, there yeah. are a number of pressures globally that will see the number of people seeking international protection increase year on year. In fact, it may get to the point in the next decade or two uh, where uh, any existing measure that has been proposed, whether it's implemented by 2024 or by 2025, mm. may have difficulty meeting demand. Uh, and briefly, uh, Daniel, these 500 properties, local authorities identifying them now to be repurposed, mm. can that be done quickly and quickly enough? There's a question mark over that, to be honest with you, because again, a lot of these, uh, some of these uh, buildings are either in very bad condition, mm. some are in, are in okay condition, but a lot of them will need an awful lot of work. Mm. So there is a question mark as to how quickly they can get done. Another question is modular housing. We've heard a lot about modular housing in terms of the response over the last couple of weeks. That seems to have fallen off the agenda a little bit, so we don't know what's happening there. We were hearing about army barracks and you know other defence force land being, that's again has fallen down the, the agenda a little bit. So. The, 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 the ground has shifted already in the last two or three weeks. So, and, and what is really coming across to me and others over the last two weeks is no one seems to be in charge of this. Who's, who's grappling this and, and driving this? It does seem to be quite scattergun. It does seem to be a little bit chaotic. All right, my panel will be staying with us after the break with rising COVID cases. Is it time for a return to mask wearing? Stay with us. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
Welcome back. Tens of thousands of COVID-19 cases were reported in Ireland over the bank holiday weekend with numbers continuing to grow. The Thornish of Radker has said there are no plans to reintroduce restrictions despite a rapid rise in cases. Here in studio still with me is Sinn Féin TD Louise O'Reilly, Fine Gael's Alan Farrell and political editor for the Irish Examiner Daniel McConnell. And joining us via Skype is Professor Anthony Staines and Dr Ilona Duffy. Um, to come to you first, Anthony, and this spike we're seeing 23,702 cases reported today, and that's just a number of reported cases. Um, what's it down to? How, how do you account for this rise? It is the Omicron variant. It's been the dominant strain here for the last uh, six or eight weeks. And it's really extraordinarily infectious. There are people who have been vaccinated maybe six months ago, nine months ago. The protection that the vaccination gives them against being infected has fallen significantly. The good news is the protection against being dead or being admitted to hospital has held up much better. So being vaccinated, particularly being boosted, makes a very big difference to your outcome. But this is an extraordinarily infectious virus. And we've we've stopped trying to prevent the spread are people, with maybe, you know, predictable consequences. And, and are people any sicker with it, Anthony, um, from, from, you know, early, from, I say it's been here for the last six to eight weeks um, in terms of symptoms and presentation. I mean, are, are people, is it lasting longer with people? There's very recent work from the UK which compares people who were unvaccinated and vaccinated. And it says that Omicron is not as severe as Delta in that population. Looking at some of the figures from places like Hong Kong, Omicron is very nasty indeed. Uh, so it's, it's a mixture of being vaccinated and the population around you. So maybe the level of exposure you get, but it's not more severe than the versions we had previously, fortunately. Okay. Uh, and, and the calls for masks to be introduced, um, especially stronger guidance and to make it basically in healthcare settings a, a mandate that you must mm. wear a mask. Is this something that you believe should happen and that the government should act on? Yeah, the things we can do now are around keeping air clean. So that's masking, filtering air, staying outdoors. The population have followed the government's advice to the letter and taken off their masks with, you know, results which WHO were drawing attention to earlier today. The gov I think the population will follow the government's advice if they give it to uh, wear masks in public transport, to wear masks in crowded places, to wear masks at certain places where you're working, and generally to take the steps required to protect yourself. Mm. But without that advice, I don't think people will. We're still not doing air filtration in schools, for example, and people have been calling for that since August of last year. Okay, uh, I want to bring Dr. Alona Duffy in on this. Um, you're obviously, Alona, you know, dealing with patients every day. Have you seen a change in the symptoms they're presenting with when it comes to this variant of, of COVID-19? Yes, in the past three to four weeks, we've noticed a change in that um, initially, let's say after Christmas, we're noticing people with mild upper respiratory type symptoms, so the cough, the cold, nasal congestion. But in the last few weeks, we're seeing that. We're seeing severe sore throat and people saying it's just like a bad tonsillitis. And more recently, we're seeing people presenting with gastroenteritis symptoms, so vomiting and diarrhea. Many of them complaining that the symptoms are lasting up to five days and are quite severe. And in fact, we've had a couple of patients who've ha ended up in A&E needing rehydration there. 
Um, we're hearing about the pressure indeed on our healthcare um, system, on workers especially because of staff shortages and people being out due to this spike in cases. What's the concern at GP level? Well, the concern at GP level is, um, I suppose we start off, we don't want to see spread amongst our patients. So we, we are uh, having to battle a little with some patients who don't want to wear a mask coming into the healthcare setting of our surgery. And again, I would love to see it becoming a more mandated um, thing that people have to wear masks in healthcare settings. But I suppose more importantly for us is we want to try to continue to provide a good GP service. And that is increasingly difficult as our staff are exposed um, to, to the virus, not usually to work because we're wearing masks and we're still adhering to good kind of safety measures but even for us tomorrow we'll be one doctor down because um, that doctor has contracted COVID and practices around the country and obviously we've heard Phil Nihay talk about similar in the hospital setting amongst our nurse colleagues. Uh, I want to bring the panel back in here. Alan Farrell, just on this, and I'm actually struck by what the WHO um, were, were saying about Ireland, and we're among a number of countries who've gone from too much in the way of restrictions to too few. So this is why Ireland um, is among countries facing a, a spike in infections now. Would you agree that we're at the nothing of the all or nothing approach when it comes to the Irish government response to this? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, I think that well, there has been a progressive re removal of the COVID measures over the past number of months, um, culminating in one in particular that I think is causing concern now with the spike over the bank holiday weekend, um, which is ma the mask mandate. Now, what I would say, and I have, as I've said for months, is that you don't need to be told to do something that's good for you. And wearing a mask should not necessarily be mandatory, but it should be the smart thing to do. So in a but public setting like can, public can transport yeah. or anywhere else, then clearly wearing a mask is the smart thing to do where air circulation is yeah. an issue or where you're in close proximity to a large number but, of people. But would you agree in plenty of indoor settings, and we've all been out and about, that you will, you will see that if some people are not wearing a mask, more people tend not to wear masks, then that's just yeah. human nature, that's what happens. But I could give you an example, Claire. I was in London a couple of weeks ago on a British-Irish Parliamentary Association um, a conference for a day, and in and around Westminster, um, not an awful lot of people were wearing masks. Inside ma uh, Westminster, not an awful lot of people were wearing masks, with the exception of the Welsh, Scottish and Irish delegations who wear. And that's because it makes sense because you're inside, you're in a, a confined setting where air circulation is a bit of an issue. Now, there are a number of settings where I think it should be required. Hospitals and medical facilities, personally, I believe that you should have, you should have well, a that requirement is the guidance, but we're not to really, wear masks. We're not, is it but, true to say we're not what, really hearing that w guidance strongly enough? I mean, that's what Phil Nihay of, of the what INMO the WHO, was saying. What the WHO also said today was that countries shouldn't dismantle their, their COVID infrastructure, which we have not done, the likes of COVID testing and other matters. They can be ramped back up listen, if required. Listen, and now we have, matter, we have stripped the, that back hugely. If no, you go no, but, online but, and you see, are you entitled to take a PCR test? Chances are you're but not. The in, but the infrastructure... No, but isn't that the case? The infrastructure will be available if it's required. Now, today there was 23,000 cases. If that were to pop, pop up to maybe 30 to 35,000 or, or something like that, then clearly I think okay. there would be time for the HSE to come back and say, now it's time to actually not just reinstate those services, but also bring back in the mask mandate. But at the All moment, right. okay. there okay. isn't okay, a wish to do Louise, that. Uh, yes, Louise, on that, do we have to wait to, to a magic number of 30,000 cases yeah. a day? That, that number's just been um, made up by Alan there. Um, I think what we need to hear actually is from actually, the CMO. No, I know. Sorry, Louise, sorry. Please, please. Okay, so you're saying that the number is 30 or 35, right? Thousands of people with COVID and at some, at some point that's going to trigger 
uh, some reaction. I think who we need to hear from is the person and the people that we heard from right through the pandemic, the people who were advising politicians can't and shouldn't make up public health advice. We should listen to public health advice. I would like to hear from the CMO in relation to one, what his position is with, uh, with regard to uh, what, what's happening at the moment, the spike in cases, and also whether or not we do need to ramp up that infrastructure, because you're dead right. We can't get a PCR test at the moment. Um, you know, I mean, the, the criteria is so rigid. Yeah. And we hear the minister then telling us that some of the facilities are going to be dismantled to facilitate other things. And so, you know, it's clear that the infrastructure has been dismantled. What's not clear, though, is what role the CMO yeah, now has, what he is yeah. doing, who he's advising, and is he are they listening to the health professionals? Because I've heard Phil Hay and what she has said on behalf of her members. I've heard Dr Duffy yeah. and others saying it. So they, we need to hear that the government are actually listening to the medical experts. Uh, isn't that a point, Danny? Who's guiding us here on this? You know, Leo Radker came out and said, you know, Neffet are now disbanded. Where is Tony? Well, Tony Holland is there. His chief medical officer is still in situ. And when, when Neffet was being wound down, we were told that he and a few of his colleagues were, were going to keep a watching brief and monitor the situation. And I'm sure if the time comes, an effort of sort will have to be reinstated. However, I think the government is right not to knee-jerk and rush headlong back into restrictions. I mean, the damage that restrictions did in this country over the last two years is phenomenal. And we should not be just scaremongering people because numbers are, are high. We were also told that, and the, and the Taunashan made the point in the, in the, in the Chamber today, you referred to the case of Denmark, where there was a spike, but numbers fell away, cases fell away again very quickly. So let's not... I mean, they've, they've probably got a healthcare system that's better able to handle I agree, it. I agree. And I'm not for one second going to defend the health service here, but we let's not get into a knee-jerk situation where we okay. rush head back along into, into restrictions. I just want to bring Anthony Staines back in there. Are we in danger of getting into a, a knee-jerk situation, a reaction to this high number of cases? Well, we're well the truth is we're well over 30,000 cases already. We're probably around 50 to 55,000 cases a day right now. We're not recording it because we've dismantled the system for doing that. The, we're, if we carry on as we are, there is a price for that. Our argument would be, from a public health perspective, that there are relatively cheap things like masks, like air filtration, like advice and ventilation that we can bring in on top of vaccination. Vaccines plus strategies mm. is what we call it. And they are worth doing. Okay. Uh, but there has to be leadership. Alona, um, just, just listening to Anthony on that, he's estimating there could be 50 to 55,000 cases. Um, do, do you believe, I mean, do you think we're looking at that? I mean, there's a lot of cases, obviously, not everyone is recording a positive antigen test with the HSE. Well, I suppose I'm kind of doing a box pop every day with my patients who, and again, we're not hearing from all of them because they don't all have to ring us, but those who do ring and they're antigen positive saying, have you registered? And the majority haven't. So the cases are way higher. But I suppose it's not necessarily about um, the numbers of the cases. It will be about the impact. And number one, if we start seeing hospitalizations as a result of COVID, if we see ICU figures rise. But I think more importantly at the moment, it's if we start continuing to see this impact on healthcare services, where more tests, more kind of clinics and everything are all being cancelled again and we're falling further and further yeah. behind for patients who are waiting on, on medical care for other for other medical issues. It's a good point, isn't it, Alan? There's so many people on waiting lists at the moment waiting for elective procedures and they're being cancelled now. Yeah, and, and that is an obvious, unfortunate consequence despite the, the investment in the health services over the last number so of years. So do we need to ramp up despite mass testing? Do we, do we need to make decisions Despite the now? number, the increase in, in, in medical professionals practising within the health service, 
the reality in the hospitals is they have to provide COVID and non-COVID services. Mm. And that in itself delays the, the provision of other services. So it's going to have an automatic and unfortunate okay. consequence. In order for us to get over that, we have to continue to implement um, in the likes of the winter plan, which has seen an increase in the number of beds that are available. And uh, indeed, hopefully that would be able to curtail the number of people on waiting lists. Okay, so there's nearly a million people on waiting lists. There were 660 people on trolleys this morning. There is clearly a crisis in the health service and the health service workers are very overwhelmed. There's an, a lot of people overwhelmed of work, uh, at the moment. Uh, and indeed, uh, I think the, there is a very clear case to be made for a convening of the uh, emergency Depa department task force, bringing together all of the people, senior clinicians, along with workers and their representatives to come together and actually examine this. But I think, you know, Daniel makes a good point. We don't need to rush into any, anything needed jerk reactions or, or, or restrictions or anything like that but I think what we which, do need to do is look at those things that we can do like air filtration and like quickly, ensuring that uh, Sinn Féin say no to a mask mandate or any such return? We listen to the public health advice we want to hear the public right. health advice Okay we'll leave it there my thanks to Dr Alona Duffy and Professor Anthony Staines lots more after this break including Ireland's bid for the Euros Welcome back. The government has sent a letter of support to the Football Association of Ireland around their expression of interest in hosting Euro 2028 alongside the UK. Minister of State for Sport Jack Chambers today welcomed the bid, saying it was a great opportunity for tourism. I think there's huge opportunities from an economic perspective, from a sporting perspective and also for tourism as well. And I think the north-south dimension is really positive, the fact that we could have games right across the island and uh, huge potential with this event in 2028. Huge potential for the event in 2028. Do you agree, Danny? Is it uh, is it a good move, a good a good thing to kind of you know place our place our bid in for? Well, I, I always think it's great to have ambition. I think it's always good to look at these things positively. I think the one thing that we have to be mindful of is our uh, the bid for us to host the Rugby World Cup about three or four years ago fell flat on its mm. face because our infrastructure wasn't up to scratch. The judges who looked at Ireland at that stage went past the M50 and said the roads weren't up to scratch, the rail work network wasn't up to scratch, the accommodation wasn't up to scratch and the infrastructure in terms of stadia wasn't up to scratch. I think what, what I'm hearing tonight is that like this will be very much limited to Dublin. This will be Croke Park potentially and definitely the Aviva Stadium. Now, the Aviva Stadium has already gone through an upgrade essentially because we were due to host a number of the games during the Euro 2020. So the infrastructure in the Aviva is pretty much there. Crow Park obviously has that issue about Hill 16 and temporary mm. seating. Uh, and it obviously will need to make sure it's up to scratch to host any sort of major international match. And not extended beyond Dublin. What would Cork feel about that? Or, I mean, is there capacity there in, in, in stadiums to take large crowds, the only, crowds? The, the only viable stadium really would be Parky Cueve, but you've got two large terraces at either end of the ground and that might preclude it from, from being included. In, in, now, Musgrave Park is probably too, too, too small. A lot of the, GA, the smaller GAA stadiums probably aren't, aren't sufficient. The rugby grounds, like, say, the RDS, probably <laughs> isn't, you know, doesn't have a sufficient capacity. So it is quite a limited bid. And, and ultimately, but one positive from this is that unlike, say, the Ryder Cup or the Rugby World Cup bid, the government won't be on the hook 
to financially underwrite this, which is a significant kind of, which makes the giving of this letter of, you know, support. Okay, so how does it work financially? Who pays for it? Well, ultimately, I think because it's a four-nation bid, like ultimately, the, I think that, like, it's a little bit, it's not as complicated as, say, kind of bidding for an Olympics or a World Cup or something like that. Ultimately, I think that it might be done through under the cover of UEFA. However, what is clear um, is that, you know, up to 150 million Oh, sorry, 150,000 uh, supporters are likely to come to Dublin mm -hmm. uh, if, we, if, if this is successful. All right. Uh, tourism boost, we're hearing from Jack Chambers. Funny enough, Labour uh, TD Aon O'Reardham was out today saying he's not convinced that the joint bid for the tournament is the right way to go, um, given all the problems that we have in domestic football and the lack of money being put in at that so end. I, I heard actually what, what Stephen Kenny had to say on the matter, is that we, you, know, you can do both and there's nothing preventing you from doing so. And as, as Danny has alluded, you know, this isn't something that we're going to have to spend billions of euros on in order to meet some distant criteria for the likes of uh, an Olympics or something like that. This is a much smaller scale activity. Um, I, wouldn't, I haven't been in Windsor Park in about 25 years. I'm not sure what condition it's in, but I wouldn't necessarily rule out Belfast. They may be able to, to do something up there. But why I'm hearing what Danny is hearing, that Dublin is the two stadium, Dublin are, are the venues. But my understanding is that the ratio, the payback, on this with the number of people that were, are coming and the investment that we, we put into, in particular, into Croke Park to facilitate football, if that's the decision that is made, is, is fairly significant. Figures like three and four to one have been mentioned, which could be a very significant um, effect on our economy in terms of uh, tourism and, of course, up to 125, 150,000 people could potentially come over to watch the games. There is also a regional impact, and that shouldn't be lost. Training camps have to be set up somewhere. Right, okay. They don't have to be to set up in that. Dublin. Yeah. And, of course, there are lots of League of Ireland clubs around the country and, indeed, large, sporting cl large soccer clubs who, if their facility was selected, investment would follow. And the likes of the right. sports capital okay, grants, where, where, where millions and millions of euros have been spent in the last few years, particularly okay. the 150 million uh, just in the last couple of months. All right. A significant portion of that went into soccer okay. and we'll see more. I think we can take a quick listen now to what Stephen Kenny had to say about the whole plan. Yeah, I think it's good news overall. I think it's, it's positive to have the, the European Championships in, in Ireland. And, um, you know, that's certainly, that is, that is a good news story. And, and uh, I'm sure, sure the Irish supporters will, will We'll look forward to having a lot of games in this country, and uh, you know that's that's to look forward to. And it's quite a distance away now, but I'm sure that they will look forward to it when it happens. Look forward to it when it happens. I mean, the thing about it is that there's no other bids in, so it looks like we could be quids in, like either way on this because of the way this is all working out. We could get this by default, really, Louise. Yeah, well, I think it's not so, so much a case that, uh, that we step forward, but everybody else stepped back. But notwithstanding <laughs> that, I do think it is, you know, if you're a soccer fan, this is obviously very, very good news. But, you know, we can't lose sight of the fact that clip from Stephen Kenny there, what he said after that was actually an acknowledgement that League of Ireland uh, soccer is way behind. And yeah, I think I, what, what that, that needs investment. We're seeing a surge in attendances. Like if you're going to Rovers, you're going to see Bowes, you'll see more people there year on year. And the, you know, the club, the grassroots soccer, the grassroots football in this state at the moment is actually enjoying a resurgence. So we need to make sure that we 
mind yeah. that, and you know, on, and that we ensure that. And that requires investment. Yeah. So anything that's a distraction from that is not good. However, I mean, I would be reassured by what uh, Stephen Kenny has said in terms of us being able to do both. But it has to be doing both. It can't okay. be a case that it's, you know, it's the, the big glitzy games over the, the you know, the ordinary supporters yeah. and, and, and the, the League of Ireland. And on this, um, Danny, like we're hearing a hundred, um, when it comes to Windsor Park, I think you mentioned it there, Alan, um, I'm hearing that 138 uh, 28 billion has been been spent on it um, to make the the capacity you know 20,000 mm. um, uh, seater stadium there. I mean, it's that level of investment we probably need in plenty of our grounds um, around the country that the League of Ireland will be calling out for. Absolutely, and, and listen, like the FAI has to share take its share of responsibility in terms of the neglect of the League of Ireland, not this year but last year, but over many decades. Decades. Um, and, and I think you know. You know, the, 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 the past crimes of the FAI can't just be forgiven because a new regime is in there. Like, they still have an awful lot of work to do to restore public confidence. However, I think we need to grow up a bit, a, a little bit on this as well. This is an international showcase event. I think Ireland should be bidding for these sort of events. I think it's great that there is a north-south dimension, as Jack Chambers said. I think it's very encouraging that it's, you know, it brings the Scots, the Welsh and the, and the English in as well. Uh, hopefully it can go successfully and hopefully we can show ourselves that as a showcase that Dublin can compete with the best in the rest of Europe and ultimately as well I think Louise makes a very fair point there's nothing to preclude the FAI doing both in, in making sure that the, the domestic league is looked after and also that we can get this because in fairness it'll be a short hit I mean there's probably about four or five games that we'll probably get it'll be over in a, in, in a battle you know in a flash of an eye so let's not be distracted in terms of the domestic league but ultimately I think it's something we should be going for All right we're out of time my thanks to Louise to Alan and to Daniel from all the late team here Good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.